0: Welcome to the Jack Weston MCAP podcast with your host, Phil Hawkins and Asai Calderon-Muñiz.
1: So we're really excited for this episode. We get to do uh, another set of topics or mostly one, one really important topic that um, a lot of students, they, they may not love it. But when you get to the examples, it can actually be really fun to learn about. So we're going to be talking about cognitive development today. Um, And the same way that you guys are advancing in your stages of MCAT prep, we are going to talk about Piaget's stages of cognitive development.
0: (laughs) I I could feel the pun coming, Um, like the the buildup of that pun. Um, Yeah, so we're gonna talk about Piaget's stages. Just for a little clarity, we're in the. We're just starting, last week was our first episode where we're talking about the psych outline. So we, stopped, we talked about 6A last time or a portion of 6A. I want to be clear, we didn't talk about every single thing. Um, I love to do that. That's what I do in the course. But some of the stuff requires a lot of visual aids that really don't work well with this format. But we're going to move today into 6B. And there's a topic or two here that really, um, like you you should spend some time on because there's a lot of meat there. There's a lot of stuff to ask questions about. They tend to be higher yield and or very tricky. Those are the things we want to spend our time on. And as Azai was hinting, what we want to talk about first is Piaget's stages. Now, just like a big picture meta view, um, Piaget, who I'm assuming is French based on his name, um, I really have no idea, um, was very concerned with Like, what happens cognitively? Like, what happens in your, your, the way that you think and see the world as you get older? And there are certain stages that you, you, that, um, like an infant to an adult will go through. And so the brain of an infant is not the same as the brain of a seven year old or a brain of a 10 year old or a 20 year old. And so, um piaget broke this down into four stages note that there's a lot of people that break stuff down into like stages of development like freud has stuff Erikson has stuff eric erickson the guy so nice they named him twice but there's also like piaget and so we're going to focus mostly on piaget today and his four stages which start with sensory motor being the first stage pre operational concrete operational and then formal operational and so i know that's Kind of like they all kind of sound the same, but uh, a lot of them names make sense, especially the sensory motor. And so this is up until two years old. Um, This is like a baby, like, you know, from birth to two years old, you're in the sensory motor stage where Piaget says you're basically just a sensor and a motor. You see things and you wiggle. And like that's, that's pretty much all that's going on upstairs. You're a sensor and a motor, no real abstract thought, not a lot of stuff going on there, symbolism, things like that. You just see stuff and move. There is one thing that's kind of important there though, is the idea of object permanence, which seems really obvious, but like if I take my pen off the screen, for those of you not watching, I, am, I took my pen off the screen, um, it still exists. And even though you can't see it, that might seem really obvious, but to a baby, that is not obvious. Like that's like mind blowing. Um, like, wait a minute, it's it still exists even though I can't see it. Um, and this is this is why like peekaboo like is like mind blowing to, to kids. Cause it's like, I stopped existing. I still exist. <laughs> I stopped existing. I still exist. And it's like poof, like you're appearing out of nowhere because in their mind, the moment they can't see you, you cease to exist. And so, developing this and and realizing that object permanence is a thing is something one of the the challenges that comes in that sensory motor stage when you're just wiggling and seeing stuff.
1: Yeah, and um, super quickly, right? Uh, these we're we're giving the ages that Piaget um, kind of anchored anchored I can't speak anchored um, this theory around, right? But recognizing that you know. It is not the moment that you turn to that object. Per- you know, you have object permanence, right? There's some. There's a little right. bit of just natural wiggle
0: room there. It, yeah, <laughs> wiggle it room. Been, yeah, wiggle room. Yeah, wiggle room. Nice. Uh, it should have been like developed sometime during that exactly state in those first mm-hmm. two years, and like it could very easily be that the MCAT will define it as like at 18 months in a passage. Um, I I do think it's a good idea to have a general idea of the ages, but note that I'm just going to say, like, instead of saying an age range, I just say the age when it changes. And so rather than remembering like zero to two and two to seven and seven to 11 and whatever, I just remember two, seven, 11, like, those are the, the the cut points where it moves from one to the other. And I think that's easier to kind of like, just remember those three numbers than rather rather than remember a bunch of age ranges.
1: For sure. And I mean, I'm pretty sure most of us have, you know, played peekaboo with a baby at some point. So, you know, that there's, you know, there are times where that child will be like, okay, it's not as fun anymore. I kind of mm-hmm. know that you're still there. Um, but yeah, peekaboo is probably the the clearest example of this for the sensory motor stage. Um, I'd also just want to add on that, you know, your uh, was it you're sensing and you're wiggling. Uh, and so um, all like, this is really for survival, right? For the infant survival. So, you know, eat, sleep, poop. Those are those are the big three, um, and so a lot of what they're doing, right? A lot of the responses, um, a lot of the reflexes that infants have are for feeding, are for protection, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of shifting, right? The next stage that comes after sensory motor is the pre-operational stage. And so like Phil mentioned, there's like the pre-operational, operational, formal operational, just think about it in terms of the prefix, right? So pre would come before. Um, so for the pre-operational think about age range, it's roughly until seven years old. So it's about two to seven. Um, this is that you know pre the the terrible twos right but then also some pre K maybe some kindergarten kind of first graders so the reason i do that is because i find it a lot easier to remember when i can like picture a small child going through these <laughs> stages and so you know you might pick yourself maybe you have some memories from first grade and you can think about how you were thinking through things um maybe you have a younger sibling or you know just like a family friend with some small kids and you can picture their progression so to think about what happens in the pre-operational stage, imagine how a kindergartner is going to behave, right? So we're going to pause for a second. What is a kindergartner's favorite word?
0: Mine.
1: (laughs) Mine. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. They don't want to share, right? Everything is about them. They are the center of their universe. And so- you can imagine that one of the key characteristics of this pre-operational stage is what is called egocentrism, right? The child is at the center of their own universe. Um, they're not going to want to share, right? So I like to think about it that way. Um, this is also when they also have a lot of imaginary friends, right? Um, and so they're understanding the world, not always just, you know, what's, <laughs> this was not meant to be concrete um, because mm-hmm. they're not there yet, but um, right they're they're kind of imagining relationships in a different way. It's like symbolic. So symbolic uh, thinking, symbolic play tends to come around this time. Um, So this is, and this is why hopefully it'll help you remember. um, Just think about that, that kindergartner, right? Mine, um, you know, just imaginary friends. And then something else that kindergartners tend to do quite a bit they'll focus on one thing, right? Have you ever had, so this, I don't know, but Phil, maybe you, you have longer hair. Maybe uh, this will <laughs> resonate with you. I, You know, sometimes, and, and for those of you with longer hair or some other feature um, that sticks out, glasses are a big one, right? Children will come up to you and they'll just like, look and they'll forget that you have a face and they'll just focus on your hair or, you know, they'll just focus on one kind of salient aspect of the whole. And then the whole kind of falls away. So it's like when, you know, that child comes up, plays with your hair, plays with your glasses, et cetera. And then they suddenly remember, oh, there's a human attached to this thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, just kind of thinking about that kindergartner, that first grader, um, can be really helpful when you're thinking about the stages. Um, any, Any other thoughts on kindergarteners?
0: No, no, there's there's definitely a lot of stuff there. The egocentrism thing is, that's why a lot of the TV shows designed for like four and five-year-olds, like the the moral of the story is like, listen, other people exist. (laughs) You should share because they tend to be so egocentric and just kind of like focused in on that one, that like just themselves and like how things affect them. Um, Hopefully people grow out of this as they move on to the next stage, Um, or at least according to Piaget, they should. Um, and hopefully
1: yeah. some folks who are watching will share our video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> and there share all the useful information that, that you find. So there's also the, um, like the, the symbolism thing. Another thing that happens a lot with kindergartners and first graders is like they start to learn to read. And that's actually something you can't do until you have an idea or an understanding of what's going on with symbolism. Right? Because you have to realize that this word is not a chair but it means chair. And so you start to like be able to imagine things and, and like make connections there. And so like you you literally just can't teach a one-year-old to read because their brain is not capable of it. They're not capable of the the symbolism kind of going on there. That idea of like focusing in on one aspect, um, Piaget did a lot of experiments based on this. And it's, it's always really fun to watch like a five-year-old do these experiments mm-hmm. um, where you're like, like the classic example is like, uh, like you take a glass of water, um, that's like a really wide glass but but short, and then you take and dump that into a taller glass that's thinner. And then you're like, okay, like which and like if you have two of those containers that both hold the same amount of water, that you can ask them, like, which one holds more water, and they'll be like, this one because it's taller, even though you just showed them it's the same amount of water. And so they tend to focus in on one aspect and they don't understand how variables can affect each other. Um, So like width and height are both um, components of volume. And so like note that that sort of understanding is actually something that's useful for um, that is useful for like algebra and things like that. So you can't actually like teach how variables affect each other like that, that young. So like a a five-year-old can learn to read, but they can't really learn algebra with like X's and Y's and how these variables affect each other. But um, beyond that, that like conservation thing, there's a lot of very funny YouTube videos where you can like, like, you know, see like uh, a person takes two balls of Play-Doh and then that are the same size. And then they stretch one out and they're like, which one's got more Play-Doh? And the kid's like that one. Cause it's longer. And you're oh. like, no, what a stupid <laughs> kid. It's the same amount. Come on, like get it together. And it's just because they don't, they don't they haven 't developed this conservation, um, which is the, this idea of being able to understand how these variables fit to each other and like like a pile of quarters and like if you just move the quarters so they're spaced out, they think there's more money in that pile uh, all of a sudden and it's like it's really funny to like watch these I could shouldn't say it's funny because it sounds like I'm picking on them, especially because a moment ago I was picking on them um, this hypothetical child I swear I would never pick on real children <laughs> But uh, it's actually a lot of fun if you just like Google like conservation videos. Um, <laughs> Piaget, you'll probably need to add that, otherwise you'll end up with things about like you know saving the dolphins. Um, but as as you move past that pre-operational into the concrete operational, um, as um, as as I was pointing out, you start to kind of focus a lot more on like like more concrete stuff. It's not that you can't imagine but just so much of your world when you're younger is imagining and pretending sort of thing. And this like uh, symbolism stuff, you still have this but you're capable of more complex thoughts. Like you start to understand space and volume and how things like how variables affect each other. I should mention that this ends about 11. So it's like seven to 11 years old. And this is when, um, you know, kids are mostly in like grade school, um, getting to that middle school area. Um, and this, this is when like, we have, you actually can start to teach them a little bit of algebra. You can teach them about volume and like height times width times, uh, depth and is like how you find volume and like, which of these objects is going to have more volume to it. And so a lot of those, those tasks that were challenging to, um, like a five-year-old to an eight-year-old, like, no, they, they can understand. Like it's, it's the same amount of money, even if it's spread out or or stacked up like it doesn't doesn't make a difference there um and so they start to understand those things a a lot of times people want to say like oh like well then that that, at this point they're like fully developed because they're able to do this there's still some issues with um abstract ideas and um like when, when this like 7 to 11 age you tend to see like miss some nuance of things like Like if you talk to an eight-year-old, like smoking is bad, murder is bad. Both of those things are bad, and so you shouldn't do them. And someone's if someone smokes, that's just as bad as if they murder, because it's smoking is bad and murder is bad. And like, actually, like those aren't really on the same level of badness, Um, right? Like, like so, so that like understanding like nuance and layers of, of of things is something that like it's really hard for an eight year old and the more abstract ideas um like the more more complex things um and that like do you have do you have anything to add to that as kind of like that concrete yeah. operational
1: yeah so I think I've made it clear that I like using, you know, school as um mm-hmm. as a, as an example. So seven to 11, right. That's, that's early middle school. Uh, that's excuse me, not early middle school, el- early elementary school. <laughs> Let's not send kids <laughs> too far yeah, ahead. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this is where, like you said, you start teaching the math, right. But you're not going to ask an elementary student, you know, what does it truly mean to be happy? Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> That's something that, you know, maybe a, a high, you know, well, definitely a high schooler can start thinking about, right? Middle schooler, you know,
0: they're getting into what for them that would look like. Yeah. Um, I, for... feel like, I feel like an elementary school would just be like candy. <laughs> like if you have candy, <laughs> you have happiness. Um, but like that, that's probably not the best definition. Or yeah, maybe it is. I think I would have said a recess <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> more than
1: candy. Um, so, you know, we talked about uh, conservation in in the pre-operational, um, but also just a little bit more empathy, right? Like, uh, you know, we, we understand the feelings of others. And I think that's also, it's helpful to think about because you're moving out of that egocentric stage and then you're able to understand others. So you are no longer the, you know, center of the universe.
0: Um, Yeah. So this is actually like a really interesting thing to point out. This is why like five-year-olds have no shame, Right. Like they like they they don't feel guilty about things unless you come down on them and like they don't feel embarrassed that much. But like you talk to a 10 year old, like they're embarrassed by everything and they're constantly worried about what other people are thinking because they're starting to realize other people exist. And then they're doing that thing. Maybe maybe not everyone does, but some people do, including maybe myself, where you lay up at night and you're like, I can't believe I did that. Like, that was so stupid, like (laughs) embarrassing. Um, well, yeah, I've learned to tone that down. Maybe I've become more egocentric as time has passed, but that's something (laughs) that definitely occurs as you leave that egocentric pre-operational stage into concrete, you start to have a better idea of like how other people view you. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and that becomes kind of a a big thing going forward. Um, speaking for myself and assume most people.
1: Yeah. And can definitely relate on the whole, you know, staying up at night. Think, man, why? Why did I say that? Why did I do Mm -hmm. that? I was joking with Phil earlier. Um, I said, you know, I just like glanced back at a at a previous video and I realized my face, if I'm not smiling, looks way too serious and angry, (laughs) you know. And so it's like, how are other people going to feel if they just see someone that's angry? But it's, um, you guys can tell, yeah. Yeah, That's that's
0: just that that just proves that you've advanced (laughs) beyond the (laughs) pre-operation.
1: hopefully I, you know, at this point in medical school, I sure hope so. Um, So, you know, now that all of us have passed uh, that stage, right, we've all moved out of concrete operational, otherwise you would not be studying for the MCAT, right? Um, We're all in what Piaget termed the uh, formal operational stage. And so really it's just once you've, you know, gone through that that, uh, concrete operational, yes, sorry, um, and you've advanced, right? This is basically where you're at the rest of your life. So 11 and up. Um, you're really, you know, you can understand these abstract ideas. As Phil hinted, you can start reasoning in terms of moral moral standards, what is good, what is bad, because you have a better understanding of what good and bad can mean, right, because you're able to to, um, use that abstract reasoning. And so this is when you get to, right, thinking just school again, you've hit high school. So it's always a little weird when I realize that a 14 year old is a high schooler, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, there's so much distance between uh, that time and, and current place. Um, but you think about having a conversation with a high schooler, high schoolers can very much tell you, you know, Oh, that's, that's not like good, you know, or that's, that's a little sketch, right? That's weird. That's a, uh, that's wrong. Um, so they're, conc- I should not say concretely, but they're concretely yeah. in that stage and then moving on. Um, so last Uh, last podcast, we tried to give you guys a sample question, right? How the MCAT could test you on um, sensation and perception. So one of the ways that the MCAT tests students on the different stages, and this is not exclusive to Piaget's uh, stages of cognitive development, is that they'll present, you know, they might have a passage and um, often they'll have like, Children, right? In the passage, doing things, um, they might give you some ages of the children, and that will usually be a big cue, a big clue, excuse me, as to what's going on. Um, and then they might ask you, right? Like, what stage or what you know uh, stage of cognitive development? They might not even mention Piaget, right? Mm-hmm. What stage of cognitive development is this child in? And then you know they might give just the options. They might give um, like the stages, and then maybe a little short blib on uh, blurb on reasoning, right? Um, they're also they're not just going to give you piaget stages in the answer choices they will probably give you some other stages from other uh more likely than not they'll give you stages from other theories that have some you know they might have similar age ranges but don't actually answer the question right so we can come up with a question maybe on um conservation and the child you know um uh pouring the, or not the child pouring the water, the child, not recognizing that the water, the amount of water is the same in both, but they might have, you know, something like may have a Freudian stage thrown in there that has nothing to do with the child, not being able to recognize that the amount of water is the same, but if you're not paying attention, you'll say, oh, that's the same age, right. That I saw in the passage. And so you'll click it and move on. So it's really important when you see these types of questions to really ask yourself, what theory is at play here, right? What theory are they trying to lead me towards? And then within that theory, in this case, Piaget stages, uh, what aspect of that theory, what stage in that theory applies to this particular example? I,
0: I love, I love that context of understanding how the MCAT's going to test it because they're probably not going to ask you like, Oh, here's a passage about like, uh, like a five-year-old going to a hearing test. Um, or something, and and then they ask you like, what stage are they in? And the answer is like, it isn't going to be like a question like, what stage are they in? And it's the four stages of Piaget. It's going to be mixing in some stuff with like Freud, like a latent phase or like the anal phase or or um, you know the like stuff something with the edible complex, or it could be something with Erikson, where you're dealing with like shame and autonomy or industry versus inferiority. And like, so you, you kind of need to know each one of these theories really well. But you also don't need to know them in isolation. You need to know how and when to apply them to these different scenarios. And I think that that that's a really good insight. Um, I wasn't even thinking about talking about that, but that's what the AAMC does every time. Like you don't have like a set of four answer choices that are all Piaget. You have like mixtures of different topics. And so if you're not clear on, on what's going on with each of them, like there's so many things you're trying to think about Erickson and Freud and Piaget. And you need to be very clear of like knowing when to talk about which one. And so like in that case, they just, in the case that we gave, they gave an age range. They could instead give something like, um, uh, like there's a lot of egocentrism. And so what's like, whose theories would this most apply to? And like Piaget is the answer to that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that that's that's a really good idea of kind of understanding how the MCAT writers um, are going to approach this and throw it at you on testing and how you should be studying it. Um, yeah,
1: I don't think I've ever seen you know as a, when I was giving these examples, like you know most of the time, but I don't think I've actually ever seen them list just one one no. theory. And if you think about why that's the case, right? They're testing your knowledge, but they're also testing your application. And so that's something that we've said and hopefully stressed enough. Um, the MCAT is not just rote memorization. If it were, you probably wouldn't be studying quite as much as you're studying right, right. now. Um, and it would be easier in, in many regards, but you're going to be doctors. If you're listening to us, that is your ultimate goal. And so as a doctor, and we say this all the time, you know, you'll be applying everything that you learn. Uh, and so that's the ultimate goal just another reason to study psych. So you get a little bit of extra practice in a fun way. Um, But I think hopefully by,
0: you know, a few episodes, you've, you've been convinced that psych is worth your time. Yeah. Just a couple of other things. I I just want to re-emphasize that there's a lot of other stuff with cognitive development going on, biological things, um, environmental things, um, like cultural things like your culture can shape cognitive development and all of those are things that the amc will test and we didn't really have like the time and and uh the scenario here to dive into those um note that we do talk about that in the courses and things like that but um but we we i I just want everyone to think like oh i don't have to look at cognitive development again like even no matter how you're preparing know that there's a little bit more to it than what we're going into um, just at this level but um, I'm excited. We're, we're probably going to stick around in 6B for a while because there's a couple of interesting topics in here besides just cognitive development. Um, and so we're going to we're going to hit like multiple topics here. Um, uh, some of my favorite things like memory and sleep. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't mean to sound like I love to sleep. I mean I do, but like the topic of sleep is a very interesting thing as well.
1: But, I think all of our students can identify with liking to sleep. Yeah. And once they get into medical school, you'll really identify with liking to sleep. <laughs> I, um,
0: I I know we've talked about like how fried you can get in med school. Um, and I feel like this is gonna scare away all of the all the the people who are listening. Um, but I took a nap every day for the first like 40 days of med school. And it wasn't because like, most people are like, Oh, like, it's so easy that like, you got to take like a nap every day. Like, no, like come four o'clock, my brain didn't work. Like I I, like, didn't know my name and who was the president. Like I would have failed like a mini mental exam um, if I talked to a neurologist. And so I'm like, I need to reset. And I would take like a power nap just to like, turn off my brain for a second and turn it back on, um, so that I could think some more. Um, but that's, that's one of those things just like mental exhaustion, um, kind of took its toll on me.
1: Super quick story time. So Wednesdays, as Phil knows, are, are the days that, um, I usually spend like in clinic until I move into a full-time clinic. And so in the morning was seeing, you know, I was seeing patients in clinic and then in the afternoon we had a central session and it was on neurology. Uh, So we were doing, you know, the, the mini mental exam we were doing, that's kind of why it came up. Um, We're doing the mini mental exam. We were doing, you know, different parts of the uh, neurophysical exam and, they should not do that in the evening. when no. <laughs> Virtually everyone is just like glazed over. <laughs> mm-hmm. So in medical school, you will have the opportunity to study when you are, you know, nice, bright early in the morning. You are fully awake. You will have opportunities to study and practice when you are might as well be asleep mm-hmm. um you know those the waves that are the brain waves and we'll get to this the brain waves that are uh currently you're currently seeing if you would do an uh, an eeg may not be the ones for awaken alert right, um, right. but you know medical school it's
0: it's something but
1: uh yes you'll you'll need a lot of sleep
0: <laughs> yeah that, that's another um, side it's, thing it's yeah just like the Like being able to deal with all this information on the MCAT and, and like put it into like an example and a story and apply it. um, That's exactly what's happening in med school. So this process of going through the MCAT will make you better prepared um, as you go forward. And psych is, I think maybe it's just me, but in my mind, I was always like a hard science guy. Like I'm looking for universal truths, like gravity, like the equation for gravity, not how people feel because that's not like a universal thing but so much of medicine is about understanding what's going on in other people's heads. Um, And so psychology becomes remarkably important. Um, Even if you don't go into the psych realm as your specialty, if you're dealing with like new parents or as a pediatrician, or if you're dealing with um, like oncology, like psychology is huge in like all of these areas Um, dealing with, like if you're a cardiologist, like you might like, or a surgeon, you might think like, Oh, you don't need to know much psychology as a surgeon there are times when you're going to have to talk to the families of patients and talking about kind of like what happened during surgery and maybe it went great, but maybe there were complications. And so like understanding a little bit about psychology can, can make those hard conversations easier as well. They'll never be easy, but easier. And so, um, I just want to like reiterate how important all this stuff is, especially somebody going into pediatrics, like Piaget stages are actually remarkably important for you to kind of understand. Um, and there's like different tests you can do um, on a whole slew of different things to apply this.
1: Yeah. And for, uh, you know, for sure. Um, two other quick thoughts, because, you know, I know we're we're wrapping up, but they came to mind. Um, so when I was saying, you know, just uh, you'll have opportunities in medical school to study when, in different uh, states of mind you can also do that while you're studying for the MCAT, right? That psych section we talked about, uh, you know, if you can take it on the go with you, if you have a smartphone, if, you know, you have little mini notebook that you write things in and whatnot, um, you don't have to be in, you know, sitting in front of your computer to study psych which is one of the beautiful things about this section. And then the other thing is it's not just psychology that's super useful. It's also sociology, you mm-hmm. know, a lot of, what a lot or a lot of what goes into patient care is understanding the patient's circumstances, understanding the patient's you know cultural background, how that may impact their approach to medicine, um, you know the history that they've had in their family and how that impacts their approach to medicine. So all of these things they are woven so intimately into the medicine that you will be practicing. Like Phil said, regardless of your specialty, so it's worth investing a little bit of time now and uh, getting an idea. And some of these things may feel obvious to some folks, right? Like, Oh, culture affects, you know, uh, cognitive development, right. But there's always nuance to it. And so this is also an opportunity to explore those nuances that you might not otherwise get to. So we've talked a lot about this. Um, it's because we're passionate about it and we want you to do as well as you can possibly do get all of those points, max out the exam. Mm -hmm. That's what we would love to see.
0: That's what we would love
1: to hear from you guys. Um, any last thoughts, Phil?
0: No, that's it. Like you just hit like the core ideas. Like we just want to help students do as well as they possibly can.
1: Yeah. So in that case, like the video, comment, um, and maybe let us know what your favorite game in one of these stages is to play with small children.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Or a story about like blowing a kid's mind or just like the conservation stuff. Like those, those Mm -hmm. conservation videos. Like I, I literally just sometimes for fun, will watch some Piaget conservation videos and just laugh Um, because it's like, like you, you saw the Play-Doh get stretched. Like obviously there's not more Play-Doh now, Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah. All right.